The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's really interesting in the high political story here is that the fact that the United States was also concerned about maintaining goodwill made basing a really powerful and lucrative bargaining chip for Latin American leaders. So when the U.S. Uh, you know, approached them for this particular form of cooperation that they knew would be really contentious and really unpopular, that put leaders in Latin America in a position of saying, okay, if you want bases, you're going to have to provide us with some kind of a quid pro quo. Some leaders were super successful in doing that. Julio Vargas in Brazil was able to get the United States to really finance a lot of his agenda for Brazilian development because the U.S. was so desperate to obtain airfields in Brazil and Brazil was in a strong bargaining position. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 18th, 2022. Today, The U.S. military maintains around 800 bases and installations around the world, with around 75 of those in Latin America, including perhaps its most notorious in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. But it wasn't always this way. To learn more about this fraught and understudied history, I sat down with Dr. Rebecca Herman, Assistant Professor of History at UC Berkeley, to discuss her new book, Cooperating with the Colossus, A Social and Political History of U.S. Military Bases in World War II Latin America. We discuss how the U.S. went from its good neighbor policy of the 1930s to nearly 200 military bases on sovereign Latin American soil by the end of the war, and the thorny questions of legal jurisdiction, labor rights, and gender relations that arose from those new sites. We also got into how, in Professor Herman's words, although national sovereignty and international cooperation are compatible concepts in principle, they're difficult to reconcile in practice. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 18th, Rebecca Herman on Cooperating with the Colossus. Now, your book takes place largely during the period of World War II, which is seen by many, I would say, uh, as a high watermark for U.S. and Latin American relations. And then also uh, as one that's fairly perhaps understudied or underappreciated, um, especially in, in, in 20th century U.S.-Latin American relations. So I'm curious, you know, just to start out from a, from a high level, uh, what story your book tells and how does it sort of add to or refine or even challenge that? traditional narrative of, of World War II, U.S.-Latin American cooperation or relations? Yeah. So as you said, uh, World War II is often thought of as this sort of atypical moment in the history of 20th century U.S.-Latin American relations because it was this moment of intense Pan-American camaraderie. Um, it was seen as this kind of high in the history of U.S.-Latin American relations. 
the closest that Pan-Americanism ever came to really realizing the potential that many people had believed Pan-Americanism could hold for a long time. There was a lot of good reason for that. The nations of the Americas did ultimately come together and break ties with the Axis powers. Um, Many Latin American republics declared war. Brazil and Mexico both sent uh, men to fight. And so a lot of this narrative is based on this sort of high political diplomatic story about unity with the Allied cause during World War II. And that stands in contrast to the broader history of U.S.-Latin American relations, which is more often organized around the history of interventionism, of U.S. incursions in Latin America, of U.S. sort of bullish behavior in the region that stoked a lot of anti-U.S. nationalism. So what my book does is it takes the history of basing specifically, which was the most contentious form of wartime cooperation. So it was an aspect of the wartime alliance that doesn't get a ton of attention, but stands out because it really tested that Pan-American rhetoric. And it kind of revealed some of the real tensions that existed between two ideals that the nations of the Americas held up as essential to inter-American relations during this period, which were inter-American cooperation on the one hand and national sovereignty on the other. So a real cornerstone of the positive aspect of U.S.-Latin American relations during this period was the United States professed respect for the territorial sovereignty of the Latin American republics, which the U.S. had not particularly respected in the past. And so because basing brought up all of these really complicated tensions between sovereignty and cooperation, you see some of the fissures in that wartime alliance through basing. Basing gives us an opportunity to think about cooperation as a contentious feature of U.S.-Latin American relations that goes far beyond the war period specifically. So one of the things that I want my book to contribute to the conversation is that cooperation, we don't often think of cooperation when we think of U.S.-Latin American relations because it has a rosy connotation. You know, I have two young kids at home. When we think about cooperation, we think of it as an inherently good thing. What my book wants to do is to view cooperation critically as a space where power is negotiated and to take cooperation between the U.S. and Latin American republics seriously as something that Latin Americans have been eager to do for a long time, despite all of the inherent risks and often the the negative consequences. And so by looking at this contentious component of cooperation during this kind of high moment, I'm trying to open a conversation about cooperation in the history of the Americas long term. Yeah. And I like what you were saying about taking cooperation seriously. I think one thing that really comes out in your book is, I mean, I think if if the traditional view of, of cooperation is, you know, depending on if you if you view U.S. hegemony in the 20th century in Latin America favor, favorably or not. So if if you don't, then, you know, U.S. cooperation only, only as you said, thwarts democracy or social justice. And uh, if you don't, it's, you know, it was it was beneficial with economic development and and um, investment, um, but but your book I think complicates that dichotomy really well. Yes, absolutely. I'm glad that 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 that's the way you saw it. I mean, my my concern throughout was that I felt like I constantly had to put cooperation between scare quotes when I was using it because I wanted to make sure that the reader understood that I was not trying to make a value judgment about the history of U.S.-Latin American relations. And, you know, as a Latin Americanist, I'm extremely critical of U.S. foreign policy in the region. But what I think our desire to critique U.S. foreign policy in Latin America has led to is insufficient engagement with 
the efforts of Latin Americans to try to steer the course of cooperation with the United States in a way that would be beneficial for them. And when we do pay attention to that, we're looking at Augusto Pinochet, we're looking at figures who have been, you know, right-wing anti-communists, people who engaged the U.S. in these really, in the in these projects that had really negative impacts, obviously, on civil society in Latin America. But there are a whole host of people in Latin America who tried to engage U.S. power and U.S. resources in other ways. They often failed or they often brought about consequences that weren't of the nature that they wanted. But I think once we start to look at cooperation beyond those spaces where we where we most often look, we begin to see a more interesting story about the nature of inter-American politics. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to get into that that middle point between I think what, you know, I'm I'm guilty of this. I think before reading your book, I was I viewed um US relations with Latin America either as intervention in the form of, you know, a, a coup of a democratically elected leader or complete non-intervention of the good neighbor policy. But I mm-hmm. think a lot of the stories that you tell exist in this in this space between. Uh so to to get back to an earlier question, um, you know, how did what was the process through which um, the U.S. went from, and the U.S. and Latin America went from the good neighbor policy of the pre-war years to then 200 uh, defense installations on sovereign soil in Latin America by the end of the war. Yeah, that is the question that I was eager to figure out when I started down this path. Um, I had seen mention of these bases in, just in passing here and there, but I hadn't seen any any more detailed histories about them and what that entailed and how Latin American leaders, particularly places where nationalists were in power, were in a position to accept U.S. bases, given the sort of political baggage that a U.S. military presence carried at this point in time. So for the first several decades of the 20th century, the U.S. repeatedly intervened militarily in Latin American affairs, particularly in the Latin American republics in the Circum-Caribbean region. So not so much in, in South America, but more in the Caribbean and Central America and Mexico. And part of this was stemming from a pretty condescending posture of superiority when it came to democratic governance and a sense that the United States role in the region was to provide tutelage to the people of the Americas who were perhaps not yet fit for self-government. And so there were a number of occupations and other sorts of military interventions that ended up stoking a lot of anti-U.S. sentiment. And by the by the late 20s, Washington had begun to, to move away from this. There was a sense that the, these kinds of interventions only created more instability. They created more trouble than they solved. Of course, with the Great Depression, U.S. priorities changed significantly. There was growing popular opposition within the United States, the idea that we would be spending resources on these sorts of things when there were more pressing issues at home. And you also see the rise of mass politics in Latin America during this period. So there's revolutionary nationalism spreading across the region, manifesting in different countries in different ways. But a lot of times part of that new revolutionary nationalism has anti-U.S. sentiment baked into it. And so that becomes part of the consequence of, of, of U.S. interventionism. And there had long been a campaign among jurists and diplomats in Latin America who were trying to use multilateralism and international law and international norms to basically convince the United States to place limits on itself. At meetings of the Pan-American Union over the years, countries would set forth resolutions where all American republics agree not to intervene in the domestic affairs of any other state. And repeatedly, the U.S. government would refuse to sign on to those kinds of principles until 1933. 
1933, which is often identified as a really important moment in the articulation of the good neighbor policy, the American Republic's men in Montevideo and the U.S. delegation agreed to this principle of non-intervention in the Americas. So even though Washington had been kind of moving in this direction, 1933 is sort of seen as this really important moment in the advent of what is called the good neighbor policy, which was a policy of non-intervention in the domestic affairs of the other American republics, and in some ways was, was seen as a pretty dramatic sea change in U.S. foreign policy in the region. So, you know, there's been a lot of attention to the ways that it, over the course of the 1930s, the U.S. simply expanded its toolkit for influencing the domestic affairs of other American republics. So using non-intervention as a way to sort of improve the United States reputation in the region by being a better neighbor, um, while also pursuing maybe economic and cultural forms of influence. And when, you know, hostilities mounted in Europe, when a new new world war appeared to be on the horizon, the goodwill that the good neighbor policy generated towards the United States and Latin America became really important from a strategic perspective. Uh, strategists were concerned about the extent to which anti-U.S. sentiment in Latin America could create opportunities for enemy inroads in the region. There were already concerns about fascist parties in Latin America that stoked all kinds of paranoia among U.S. strategists. And so this idea that the good neighbor policy had gone a long way in improving the United States reputation and fostering goodwill towards the U.S. and Latin America became really important. And at the same time, from a more sort of concrete tactical perspective, advances in aviation had made defense strategists really concerned about U.S. vulnerability to aerial attack. And so at the same time that on the one hand, you have folks saying, okay, it's a strategic imperative that we maintain goodwill towards the United States and Latin America. Uh, you had other folks saying, we need defense installations, we need military bases, we just need a bigger aviation infrastructure so that we could unilaterally defend the Americas from Axis aggression, because we're much more vulnerable now than we were in the naval age, right? We're now in a position where the distance between places has shrunk considerably, and we need more infrastructure, not less. The problem was these two security imperatives, goodwill and basing, seemed quite clearly uh, like they were going to run at cross purposes because the legacy of U.S. intervention and U.S. occupation in Latin America was very closely identified with the U.S. military presence. So part of the challenge that the United States faced was how to advance this basing agenda without sullying the project of Pan-American solidarity. So I, I think we've established pretty well, you know, why, or rather you have established well, um, why the United States, you know, pursued the project of, of basing in Latin America. I want to shift focus to the conundrum then faced by Latin American leaders and diplomats. And um, I will say one thing I loved about your book is that it's both a social and political history. And, and so, as you said, you, you cover the high politics and then also what was happening on the ground. But first, I want to want to focus in on the, on the former. Um, what was the conundrum uh, or the crisis that Latin American leaders faced in these negotiations with the basing? And feel free to draw on, you know, I know you focused uh, specifically on on three countries in the book. Um, so feel free to draw on those. But um, I guess, you know, this is this is a question spanning the region. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, well, the conundrum that Latin American leaders faced was this was a period, as I mentioned previously, where you saw a rise in mass uh, politics in the region. There was a sort of strong wave of, of, of revolutionary nationalism. 
at the same time, there would grow to be support for the war effort. But the nature of Pan-American solidarity or Pan-American cooperation in the war effort really mattered in terms of popular perception. So there was a clear sense that while people were perhaps on board with closer economic collaboration or, you know, um, celebrating, you know, the myth of the new world as a as a rationale for, for Pan-American unity and preventing the war from coming to the Americas, there was a lot less appetite for a U.S. military presence. And so the position that Latin American leaders were in was were, was that they had to make sure that their cooperation did not just consist of becoming a staging grounds for the U.S. military. What's really interesting in the high political story here is that the fact that the United States was also concerned about maintaining goodwill made basing a really powerful and lucrative bargaining chip for Latin American leaders. So when the U.S. Uh, you know, approached them for this particular form of cooperation that they knew would be really contentious and really unpopular, that put leaders in Latin America in a position of saying, okay, if you want bases, you're going to have to provide us with some kind of a quid pro quo. Some leaders were super successful in doing that. Julio Vargas in Brazil was able to get the United States to really finance a lot of his agenda for Brazilian development because the U.S. was so desperate to obtain airfields in Brazil and Brazil was in a strong bargaining position. So they could do this in a number of ways. You know, there were ways that uh, certain development goals really dovetailed nicely with U.S. security objectives. So, for instance, we talked about this is a moment where you're seeing advances in aviation. Latin American republics were interested in expanding their civil aviation infrastructure, right? Modernizing airfields, expanding uh, the infrastructure that they had. And so that was a place where U.S. and Latin American desires aligned, albeit for different reasons. Uh, transportation infrastructure of other kinds, road building, public health infrastructure. Uh, the U.S. was really concerned with extracting raw materials in Latin America that would be vital to the war effort. Um, so all of these were were places where you could see why Latin American leaders, who are perhaps less concerned with what's going on in Europe, but more concerned with national development, would see an opportunity here. One thing I think that your your book demonstrated really well was that there was an, an ideological hur- hurdle as well. And I, one thing that struck me was a really interesting sort of framing solution that both the U.S. and Latin American leaders had um, in terms of, you know, f- overcoming this this sovereignty cooperation tension. Uh, so I wonder if, if you could speak to to that framing solution as well, not just the material uh, exchange, but also this sort of ideological compromise. So let me say, while the U.S. is negotiating bilaterally with each American republic individually to on the basis of what the U.S. imagines that particular republic has to offer in terms of natural resources or, um, you know, desired airfields. At the multilateral level, the foreign ministers of the Americas were convening periodically to to declare their solidarity. And at one point, there's this sort of agreement that in the Americas, an attack on any one republic will be perceived as an attack on all republics. So a lot of the terms of cooperation that they develop are contingent upon this idea that if there is an attack on the Americas, on any one part of the Americas, then we're all in this together. So they're operating in these two different fields. So the attack on Pearl Harbor ends up making much more cooperation, much more palatable to the people of the Americas. That rationale for everybody banding together is is now real. Before that, it's much trickier. Because there are a lot of people in the Americas who feel like, you know, this isn't really our fight. 
uh, this might just be an opportunity for the United States to expand further into the region to, you know, this is just a, a sort of an opportunistic imperialist move. And so in that period before the attack on Pearl Harbor, the leaders of the Americas are much more cautious in what they concede. Meanwhile, in Washington, particularly in the State Department, there's a sense that military basing is just going to be too unpopular for any Latin American leader to successfully permit. And so the proposal that ends up winning the day is the War Department should find a a private company that can advance airfield construction under the guise of commercial expansion. And that way, the U.S. government doesn't look like it's, you know, reverting to the pre-good neighbor days and Latin American leaders don't look like they're guilty of, you know, selling out the nation. And so the plan that's ultimately pursued is the War Department contracts the airline, Pan American Airways, to undertake this construction. The designs are provided by the War Department. The money is provided by Roosevelt's War Emergency Fund. But it's Pan Am that goes to the government in each country where construction is sought, figures out what permits are required, presents the plans. And all of this is done under the guise of commercial expansion. Now, what the archives show is that most often the you know, heads of state in each of these places in Latin America knew who the sponsor of the program actually was. I mean, at the same time that they're having staff conversations with Latin America, with the U.S. security forces about the kinds of, you know, aerial infrastructure they want, Pan Am shows up proposing to build that very infrastructure. So it, it was sort of an open secret in the diplomatic sphere, but what it allowed both the U.S. and Latin American allies to do was to sort of shield themselves from popular perception or popular rejection of U.S. basing in the region. So most of the bases that were built, all of the bases that were built before Pearl Harbor began to go up as Pan Am construction projects. Yeah, that's so interesting, um, that that sort of guise. And, you know, I think so far we, we've spoken about how this how national sovereignty and, and international cooperation are are compatible and can be reconciled, I think, in high politics. But I think a lot of the meat of your book goes into how, uh, in practice, it's it's not so not so easy to understate it. Uh, so before we go into you know some of these these governance issues that communities around bases faced, I'm I'm curious just to give the listeners a, a better visual of of you know what we're talking about when we say installations or bases or airfields. You know what do these look like? How big were they? Who were staffing them? The listeners obviously can't see this, but there's an excellent map at the beginning of the book. So and if you could give a bit about the dis- distribution of them throughout the region. Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. So when I say defense installation, part of the challenge in this book was figuring out the proper vocabulary. Because at this point in time, you know, now estimates of, of the U.S. global basing footprint is anywhere from, I don't know, seven to, 700 to 850, depending on on where you look at the numbers. That is not the case prior to World War II. World War II is really when the U.S. global military footprint explodes. And so this now we have this really elaborate vocabulary for what you call different kinds of military installations abroad. And that elaborate vocabulary did not exist back then. Airfields, air bases, airports were often used interchangeably. And so it was a challenge as I was writing to figure out what are the words I should use to make sure that I'm conveying what I mean to convey. So the 200 defense installations really covers a really dramatically diverse set of facilities. You had everything from, you know, radio installations in the forest in, you know, in the Isthmus of Panama to the largest U.S. air base outside of U.S. continental borders in the Brazilian Northeast. 
so this is a really broad inclusive category once you drill down into the larger bases uh, that number shrinks considerably but it was particularly important to me to include the more inclusive number because panama is one of the three countries that i look at most closely and panama permitted the us to use 134 defense sites outside of the canal zone which is just such a huge number for such a small country and was really significant in the course of panamanian history um in terms of how these facilities are distributed the idea initially particularly with that panam project that i described was to create two chains of airfields that would encircle the americas and in particular would allow the us armed forces to defend the panama canal and prevent an assault on the united states from south america there was this fear of a transatlantic attack across the south atlantic from west africa to the northeast of brazil and then the thinking was you know the brazilian northeast is largely indefensible if german forces for example were able to get a foothold in the brazilian northeast they'd be in a really good position to either uh, attack the panama canal or the united states so when you look at the map you can kind of see how there are these two chains of facilities that run through the caribbean and along the northern coast of south america and around what they call the brazilian bulge the northeastern part of the brazilian coastline and then the other runs through mexico central america and along um, kind of meets that first chain along the northern coast of south america after the attack on pearl harbor the us uh, got set about building more facilities on the pacific coast of south america but the initial focus had really been around the canal and the brazilian northeast quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 53124 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time i got a report from the folks at delete me it was shortly after i started using the service back in 2022 and they sent me their first privacy report i have since gotten eight others and it contains some shocking information they had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers that this had included 133 separate records including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. 
Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Now that we have you know, a better picture of, of these sites and, and where they are, um, I would love to dig into some of these issues that you raised through you know, quite deep archival research into the governance issues around the base. So you know, in terms of labor rights, discrimination, gender relations, I want to get to those, but first I wanted to talk a bit about some of these jurisdictional issues that that came up. Um, I think mm-hmm. some of these sort of legal paradoxes would be pretty interesting to to listeners. Um, I think I want to start with, uh, I guess, where you start. So uh, the first chapter, which you call um, the the specter of Guantanamo, one one really interesting aspect to me was the, actually the the 1903 lease um, in which Cuba r- retained quote ultimate sovereignty over the leased lands and waters of. Guantanamo, but that the U.S. retained, quote, complete jurisdiction and control therein. So I think that, you know, this kind of (laughs) 
really stuck out to me as as a good encapsulation of these these jurisdictional issues. Could you speak to a bit of some of these stories? Um, you know, in terms of U.S. service members, you know, committing acts of violence or or crime or arson, and then the conflicts that arose afterwards. Yeah. So the reason that first chapter is called the Specter of Guantanamo, as you will imagine, is that Guantanamo, which the U.S. acquired in 1903 seem to represent everything that was wrong with the old way of doing things in the Americas. So it's, it was a it was a symbol of U.S. imperialism and bullishness in the region. And this idea that that Cuba was sovereign over the territory that Guantanamo occupies, but that the U.S. would exercise complete jurisdiction therein just encapsulated the aspects of U.S. policy in Latin America that Latin Americans found so objectionable. And the aspects of U.S. policy that good neighbor Washington was meant to distance itself from. So if the new rhetoric of the day is we respect all of the American republics as our sovereign equal peers, you know, we respect the territorial integrity of the other American republics, and we no longer are going to assume this posture of superiority that, you know, our fellow American republics need us to teach them how to govern themselves. Then jurisdictional questions really kind of dredged all of that old history back up. Because from the beginning, U.S. military leadership was very clear, it is imperative that we maintain jurisdiction over our men while they're overseas. So that, from their perspective, was a non-negotiable, and they believed that that was a right that they were entitled to on the basis of international law. Latin American leaders were absolutely unwilling, for the most part, to concede that the U.S. would have jurisdiction over their men while in Latin America, because that seemed like a form of extraterritoriality that was reminiscent of the pre-Good Neighbor era days, and that would be a backsliding. Again, nationalists in power did not feel that they could put that on paper and without great political costs, and it also went against what they believed in. And so the question of jurisdiction was such a contentious one from the beginning. I also, you know, circling back to the idea that this is the the moment in which the U.S. military footprint really goes global in a way that it will maintain to the present. There was no tradition of status of forces agreements at this point in time. That's a status of forces agreements, which dictate the terms of governance over U.S. military bases overseas, are a feature of post-war basing. So there wasn't really a lot of precedent to draw on at this point. The precedent that did exist consisted of U.S. bases in places that the U.S. had not professed to view as sovereign equals. So there's this real concern in Latin America with making sure that there wasn't just a huge proliferation of Guantanamos across the region. And one of the kind of markers of whether this was any different than Guantanamo was around who was in charge, right? So in most cases in the high political realm, the agreement was to just leave the issue of jurisdiction out of written agreements entirely, which meant that at the end of the day, they sorted this stuff out on the ground. The U.S. did, more often than not, maintain jurisdiction over U.S. troops in Latin America throughout the course of the war. In each place, a, a little bit of a different system developed. These were sort of improvised on the ground. But for the most part, in most places, the, the tradition would be if U.S. military police arrested, for example, a Brazilian national, they would turn that person over to Brazilian police. 
And if Brazilian police arrested a U.S. soldier, they would turn that man over to the U.S. military police. So that informal arrangement was exercised in practice. This was true in Brazil. This was true in Cuba. But when occasionally someone from the State Department might say to the U.S. ambassador in Havana, hey, you know, I understand that in practice we exercise jurisdiction here. Can we formalize that? Can we get this in writing? The answer was always no. (laughs) We are getting what we want in practice. Let's not rock the boat. This is a political hot potato. But that did create a setting in which any incident between you know US service men and the local community could become this issue of international relations and could have kind of bigger reverberations. A complicating factor was that a lot of times, you know, the US military presence really upset existing social practices. And so for example, in a conservative town in northern Brazil where I did a lot of research, there was an instance where two US servicemen and two Brazilian women were arrested coming out of a movie theater. And the crime was moral offense. And there's all this paperwork going back and forth between the U.S. and Brazilian governments because the folks in the U.S. are trying to figure out what that means. And from what they can gather from their perspective, whatever was actually going on didn't seem all that immoral. But so this you know, begs the question, well, immoral according to whom? Law is not just about you know, technical legal authority, but also about establishing social norms and policing social norms. And so in instances where the loss of that authority to police the behavior of U.S. servicemen felt like the loss of the authority to maintain certain social customs or to preserve uh, certain you know, gender relations, then those issues became all the more explosive. That theater incident created a lot more paperwork than, for example, vehicular manslaughter, which both parties could agree was a bad thing. Hmm. I, I want to stay on the ground, so to speak, to highlight another intervention that I, I think your book makes in that, um, you know, communities around the bases, you know, weren't only um, having to react to issues that arose, but actually also many people would proactively use the circumstances to advance their own means, uh, and sometimes often quite creatively. So could you speak to some of those stories about um, how people you know, faced with this new base in their community, um, were able to maybe redirect or funnel some of those resources for their own lives? Yeah. So this is one of the parallels that I saw as I was looking at, okay, what's going on on the ground and what's going on in the high political realm. U.S. basing ends up colliding with local social and political conflicts in a number of unexpected ways. And so people who have a different position within that conflict trying to find ways to advance their interests in the face of the U.S. presence. So one example is this question of labor rights. In Brazil and Cuba, over the course of the 1930s, you saw the rise of really progressive labor legislation that kind of aligned with this broader rise of mass politics in the region. And U.S. defense contractors from very early on were not interested in observing many of the newly won labor rights, particularly those that would make base construction more expensive or might slow it down. So the fact that these bases began to be built at this particular moment in the labor histories of each of these countries is really interesting, because in both cases, there were newly won labor rights on paper, but whether those rights were going to be upheld in practice or enforced in practice really remained to be seen. And so uh, people advocating for labor rights could take 
the United States violation of their rights as an opportunity to frame the enforcement of labor rights as a nationalist and proper response to the situation. You know, if the Brazilian labor courts did not uphold Brazilian labor rights, then that could be seen as sort of a betrayal of the Brazilian people because this is a foreign power that, or, you know, an agent of a foreign power that is violating those rights. Similarly, in, you know, ongoing changes around the nature of, of gender relations, for example, in conservative Catholic parts of Brazil, where I did some of my research, you had conservative Catholics who were very concerned with the perception that Brazilian women, so this is the moment where you see the rise of the modern woman, the, the idea that Brazilian women were losing their way, right? Because they're going out into the workforce, they're going out, they're socializing in public, they're changing some of the social norms that had, you know, determined the nature of, of, of women's behavior in society. Previously, the defenders of the old patriarchal you know, male honor could point to the United States as the perverting factor, the U.S. military presence as the perverting factor, and sort of ascribe an external source to explain women's behavior and paint their own positions as as nationalist and proper. Um, so it just kind of injected all of these local conflicts with a new set of factors that hadn't been there necessarily before the basis started to go up. Certainly, these debates would continue after the bases went away, but it did complicate those local conflicts in ways that I found really fascinating. I, I mean, I also I think that answer um, illustrates how this, you know, your book is a very dynamic history in that it, it shows that cooperating with the Colossus, often people were able to do it or try to do it on, on their own terms, I think, as as you've written and and to, you know, make the most out of this engagement while still keeping their interests centered, which was which was a, an interesting intervention for me, as I said. I think, you know, one thing you said earlier about the figure of, you know, the footprint of today's U.S. military bases, uh, I think the figure is something, you know, upwards of 700, 800 installations around the world really shows that this is not a, an, an isolated history. So I'm, I'm curious to what happened, you know, at war's end. Um, what were the fate of some of these bases? Were they maintained or did they fold? Yeah, so at the end of the war, a lot of the bases the U.S. government was happy to abandon. Uh, they were no longer needed. But there were there was a core network that U.S. officials really wanted to maintain. And in some places, like Brazil and Panama, the leaders of those countries saw the desire for extended basing rights as a new opportunity for fresh bargaining, right? Like this could be the source of a continued quid pro quo that would be beneficial in advancing the kinds of, of uh, nation building objectives that those leaders had had since the beginning of the war. But a couple of things had changed that were really significant in preventing the United States from ultimately, ultimately extending those basing rights. One big one was, of course, the war had provided the justification for tolerating a U.S. military presence on sovereign soil in Latin America. And when the war ends, that rationale goes away. So you have a lot of people who are saying, okay, if you want to prove that the good neighbor policy still exists, the only way to do that is to, to pack up and leave and, and prove that this wasn't just a ploy to you know, extend the United States' uh, reach into Latin America for good. You also had, with the end of war, a real boost in Communist Party membership in Latin America, the sort of Soviet contributions to, to the success of the war effort. Uh, were a boon to the left in Latin America. 
And you had uh, a strong push for democracy in Latin America. This is a period historians talk about as a democratic spring in Latin American history. And so you had this really, you know, ideologically diverse and vibrant left that became very vocal in opposition to the bases. So Latin American communists had largely kept their mouth shut about U.S. basing during the war because they were, you know, devoted to the war effort. And when the war is over, that devotion goes away and they can kind of resume their natural state of anti-U.S. <laughs> campaigning. And so in both Brazil and in Panama, popular protests really make the, the continued U.S. presence uh, impossible. And in Panama, especially, there's a mass mobilization, a mass outpouring against a treaty that the U.S. and Panamanian governments concluded that would have extended the United States' rights at a, at a certain selection of the bases that were created during the war. And the Panamanian National Assembly ultimately is forced to, to refuse to, to ratify the agreement. And a lot of Panamanians and historians of Panama view that as a particularly important turning point in the nation's struggle against the U.S. occupation of the Panama Canal Zone, because that was sort of the beginning of a popular mobilization against the U.S. presence that, you know, at that point didn't dare contemplate the end of U.S. ownership over the Canal Zone, but, but later would. And so the subsequent struggles for the end of U.S. ownership of the Canal grew from that moment in the in the eyes of many. Yeah, as you mentioned, um, I think you described well what happened after the war in Latin America, sort of return to an anti-US interventionist status quo, um, which makes sense. I don't think people's memories were so short as, as to forget everything that happened before the war. But turning to the legacy in, in the US, you know, what, what lessons do you think US policymakers took away from this new uh, what you call the political economy of security cooperation, uh, especially as the Cold War began either during World War II or, or immediately after, depending on how you look at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the obvious takeaways was that basing, because it's territorial and because it so blatantly exposed the challenges of reconciling sovereignty and cooperation, was particularly unwelcome and problematic. While other forms of cooperation that the U.S. and Latin American partners had engaged in during the war were not, uh, they did not provoke the same kind of popular backlash. One of those forms of cooperation that really originated during the war that would become especially important to the course of U.S.-Latin American relations during the Cold War was uh, military cooperation. It was during World War II that the U.S. became a particularly present partner for the security forces of the Americas, particularly in the places that the U.S. hadn't occupied. Prior to that in South America, you know, the armed forces of South American nations were, were much more likely to have military advisors from Germany or France than they were the United States. All of that changes by the end of the war. Um, what began as sort of a diplomatic initiative to, you know, hold up the cause of Pan-American cooperation, you know, we'll do military exchanges, we'll, we'll send military advisors became a much more concerted effort to maintain a network between the, the and an alliance between the security forces of the Americas and uh, military aid to Latin American security forces also really dates to this moment. In the immediate years after the war, there were all kinds of debates about whether that should continue with people in Latin America and in the U.S. on both sides of that debate. But during the Cold War, that form of security cooperation was profoundly important, as I'm sure you and, and your listeners likely know. So what, what were the enduring lessons? 
So one of the things was as long as the security forces of the Americas were closely knit and the United States could count on access to defense installations as needed, then maybe the U.S. didn't need the expense or the headache of occupying U.S. bases across Latin America full time. What's more, the U.S. continued to have a military footprint in the Panama Canal Zone, in Puerto Rico, in Guantanamo, in these places that were very different from the wartime defense sites. So there's this ability to maintain some boots on the ground and also the relationships that would allow U.S. forces the access should they need it. At the same time, the, the security concerns during the Cold War turned out to be quite different than they had been during World War II. There was a concern about fascism as an ideology in Latin America, but the primary security concern was about the potential for an extra hemispheric assault on the Americas. During the Cold War, the concern is more squarely ideological, right? It's about the spread of communism. And so counterinsurgency becomes much more central to the way that U.S. defense planners thought about security problems in Latin America than extra-hemispheric invasion was. And that had consequences for the kinds of training that the U.S. provided, the kinds of weapons that the U.S. provided, and of course, the way that Latin American civilians experienced the consequences of those security relationships. That seems like a good place to leave it. I think before we get into the territory, perhaps, of another book. Professor Herman, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Tyler. I really enjoyed it. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material Supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other offerings, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and the Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.